So hello and welcome to another edition of Free Lunch. Uh, to our listener, maybe plural, thank you for joining us again this week. The topics we're gonna cover are poverty, homelessness, the minimum wage, and we're gonna talk a little bit about our favorite topic, measurement. So before we start, there's a disclaimer. Uh, Free Lunch is part of the Texas Podcast Network, the conversations changing the world, brought to you by the University of Texas at Austin. The opinions expressed in this podcast represent the views of the hosts and not the, of the University of Texas at Austin. So before we get into what's hopefully going to be a lively discussion, uh, we wanna recap a couple of the events we've had recently at the center. And so I wanna start with Valentin Bolotny's excellent paper, Why Do Women Earn Less Than Men? Evidence from Bus and Train Operators. So this is a fantastic working paper that seeks to understand the gender pay gap through an analysis of the, the time cards of transit workers in Boston. And so why this is so cool is, in, is for MBTA employees, the, uh, everyone basically earns this. Yeah, there's a union contract such that it doesn't matter who you are, the amount you earn is just dependent on the amount you work. And so Bolotny and his co-author can use this to figure out uh, partially where is the gender pay gap coming from. And so they find that female workers take fewer hours of overtime and more hours uh, off than uh, incomparable male workers, and that the pattern is especially acute for females with dependents. So I recommend that you read the paper. The links are in the show notes. And now I'm going to turn it over to Carlos, who's going to talk about some of our other events. Yeah, so one of the uh, unifying themes of what, first of all, welcome everybody. Sorry, <laughs> should we? Uh, um say hello first. But one of the unifying themes of these four topics that we're going to discuss today is what, what Steve already mentioned, the notion of measurement. How do we measure? How do we assess whether you know we're seeing a problem or the effect of a policy and, and so on? And there's a, uh, uh, a lot of what we saw in this past four events in Salem Center were ways to carefully measure the effect of a policy or, or the actual problem we're trying to, to, to deal with. In, in, in doing that in an interesting way, in an interesting way, in a way that really helps isolate the effect of that specific problem they were trying to solve. So uh, the first one, as, as Steve mentioned, was this notion that if trying to understand the gender pay gap, focusing on numbers like 78 cents on a dollar, numbers that are, are just overall averages, might not be as informative to the, the source of the problem, the origin of the problem, as, as doing things that are a little bit more apple-to-apple -apple comparisons, more careful comparisons, such as the work as Valentin Bellotny. So there, I mean, the, the bottom line there is that once you take, you know, really apples-to-apples -apples comparisons, you see that flexibility is one of the huge components associated with why women get paid less. They demand more flexible jobs. And that has to do not necessarily with the structure of the companies, but rather has to do with the structure of family life, the structure of social arrangements that we have, right? So. Um, a lot of the efforts in dealing with pay gap have to have, seem to be focused and targeted at companies directly. And maybe they are not the bad guys here. Maybe they are not the culprits here, but rather the way we structure our social arrangements, marriages, the caring of elders and, and so on and so forth. So his paper is really, really nice in, in highlighting that and emphasizing that in a very clean uh, setting and, and, and providing us with that, with that information. The other three things that, that we, we had, and I, I wanna go in order here, one was, um, issues associated with the minimum wage. And that to me was a really interesting talk. Um, we just had a, a, a Senate bill that eventually removed, right, the $15 minimum wage target, something that has been talked about in a lot of political circles for the, uh, for the past, what, I don't know, a few years as a focal uh, uh, policy idea. And, and here we had somebody that has been working on the minimum wage, on the impact of minimum wage for a long time. So, so David Newmark, if you look at the recording of that, of that uh, episode, um, he, he has been, you know, his career essentially spent on trying to understand the effect of minimum wage on, onto, primarily onto hours work. So, so the, 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 the sort of natural thing that we think about is that raise the minimum wage, you might have a decay in the demand for labor, right? So, so, so labor demand goes down, therefore maybe people are gonna have fewer hours available for them to work. So there's an impact on, on work hours, on work, right? Uh, but he actually extended that and not only, he did a very good job summarizing the extent of the literature on the effect of minimum wage law changes onto employment effect, but also uh, focusing on poverty. I'll let people jump in here, please jump in whenever. Uh, but the but the idea in poverty is that two 
goals of raising the minimum wage law might be one to raise, give a raise to workers. And it is true that the workers who keep their jobs will get a raise if they are working minimum wage now um, and, and the minimum wages rates, right? However, some workers might lose their job and that's pretty clear in the literature. There is this employment effect associated with it. The other aspect of it might be something to do with redistribution and, and alleviating poverty. And that was, a, to me, what, what I learned was a new thing that I learned from his talk was the notion that if you're trying to use the minimum wage as a tool to fight poverty, it turns out to be a tool that it's not as effective. In fact, the most people that are going to benefit by raising the minimum wage were folks that had, I think, what was the number, Steve? Maybe you remember, uh, that are living uh, three times the poverty line, right? So, so they are three times above what we think the poverty line is. So we're talking about teenage kids. We're talking about folks that live in households that have extra income and other, other sources. So you're not really necessarily helping the most vulnerable, the most in need with, uh, uh, with a, a tool like that. Is that, is that the number? Is that a, uh, that, am I saying that correct? I think that was. Uh, I'll, I'll look it up and put it in the show notes. Okay. So. All right. All right. <laughs> A post-mortem check on, on how, know, how right? accurate yeah. we are on the, on the accuracy of our podcast. Right, right. Um, I don't know. Does anybody else want to comment on the minimum wage? I mean, maybe that's we can do like an order like that. I mean, my own take on these issues, I come at this as a philosopher rather than as an economist and rather than somebody with a particular background in policy is I think of these issues first and foremost as moral issues. And uh, I think minimum wages are morally wrong. I think they're restrictions on agreements between people uh, to work in ways that are mutually agreeable to those people. I don't think that's justifiable. I think it's a violation of rights. And I think things like that can, in principle, only lead to harms. But when you then go to look at, well, what are the actual effects in practice? I think you it's uh, if I'm right about the moral principles at stake, and I think I am, we could argue it some other time, then it can only lead to harms in practice. But that doesn't tell you exactly what harms where, how it'll work out. And of course, you always want to check on your principles by seeing how things actually do work out in practice. And uh, you enrich your understanding of the abstractions by seeing them in practice and vice versa. And so I'm really interested in, in, in following this kind of work and seeing what we find when we do enact these kinds of policies. So I, I, it's interesting you should say that, Greg, because I, I have almost an entirely different view. <laughs> Having worked at the SEC for a decade, uh, one of the things that really struck me there was that fraud is prevalent, always has been, always will be, and tremendous amount of resources are spent by the government to protect people who otherwise can't protect themselves. And particularly here, we're talking about a class of people who aren't in a position uh, to fight for their own right to protect themselves. It can be expropriated. And really, this, this comes down to an you know, issue of choice and free choice. Some people are in a better position to choose than others. And I think here we're talking about a set of people that don't have an alternative. And if somebody offers them $3 an hour versus 4 their choice you know, may be zero. And so I, I view it a little bit differently. And I think it's, you know, I understand the perspective you're coming from. Uh, but you know, I also view it from a perspective of exceptionalism, where in situations like this, I don't think uh, we can apply like general principles to you know specific solutions. So all right, Scott, well, but why, let me let me ask. You. Go ahead, go ahead, Steve. I was going to say, so why 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 don't we structure this discussion? And you know, suppose suppose you're Joe Manchin for the day, and you basically have the power to set the minimum wage essentially anywhere between seven twenty five an hour and fifteen an hour. So what minimum wage would you set? Why and you know what trade-offs are you okay with, and which ones aren't you okay with? That's a great question, and so I, I go first. Oh, you, you, you let me go first. Let's <laughs> yeah, yeah, jump right I, in there. I, I think it's first. an empirical question. We don't know the answer until we try. It's like many no, I things. Think we that... do know the answer, and that's actually that's where I disagree. I think we do know the answer. Uh, um, the the answer here is that the effect is going to be no. Up to you know, small modifications of the 725 is going to have absolutely no effect on either employment or 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 really raises because the de facto minimum wage in most places is above 725. Even there's very few people in the state of Texas where the minimum wage is set at 725 an hour that actually makes 725 an hour. So so that's a very very small set of people that would potentially benefit from that. Um, but that is a set of people that would that is a set of people that would benefit from that. 
No, no, if they keep their jobs, let's 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 be clear. There's a subset of people that could benefit from that. If there's no disemployment effect, they might lose hours, right? So if we go, for example, now, and I'm going to say that the magnitude matters here, right? The Seattle experiment seems to point out the direction that um, folks that kept their jobs maybe saw an, uh, an increase, but on average, everybody got a pay decrease because the, the number of hours demanded went down so much more than the amount that was paid, right? So there's a little triangle in our supply and demand curve that was actually negative as a result. So uh, my answer to the Joe Manchin question is at 725, don't touch it. Don't touch it because it's not necessarily needed. You're not doing any good whatsoever. Uh, in particular, in places that are most vulnerable is the places that you're gonna end up hurting the most. So I think the lowest average wage that you see in the country is in Mississippi, for example, where you have a lot of workers there maybe get paid closer to the minimum wage, if not at the minimum wage. And in places like that, where uh, the types of skills they're being demanded are low, uh, you get, you know, again, you see a, a, a larger potential disemployment effect, and therefore you might end up hurting the people they're hurt, they're, they're needing the most as a result of of the policy. So I think I we do, and and and, and that's where I I really enjoyed the presentations that I, I don't know if you remember this, but I asked David, David, give me your political background here, just so I know who's talking about this, not you know conservative Carlos talking, right? Like he's like, I never voted for the, the Republican in my whole life. In fact, David, if you follow him on Twitter, he sounds to me as somebody very, very liberal. And through his, his research, through his empirical work, he's basically convinced that don't touch that. That's not a, a, a tool for you to help uh, people at all. There's much better ways. There's much better ways to alleviate poverty, to help the people in need than to, 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 to mess up with the sort of arrangements in the labor market. Yeah, so I, I, I would agree that if you set a minimum wage that distorts the market, you could set it in a way that distorts the market economy. I also agree that there are probably better solutions, and I like this talk a lot for the reasons that he gave. But, you know, there are also a couple of, you know, things that I noticed in his presentation, like in the empirical research, I think he showed that maybe three quarters of it showed to be a negative effect, and one quarter of the research said a positive effect, and so really it's situational. But what I really noticed is that there are so few academic papers that talk about the zero effects. And it's a problem with academia in general, which is you don't ever publish the zero effects, right? The no effects. And so we have, uh, there's a selection bias in the research that we have where people have found an effect. And maybe that speaks towards you don't do anything about it. But I also think there's a lot of evidence that's just purely missing, missing because economists have researched this, didn't find anything, which is in itself an important fact, but nobody knows about it because they couldn't get it published somewhere. Well, it's worth noting that one of the famous studies in the minimum wage, Cardin Kruger, found no no effects. Um, and, and an interesting counterpoint to Newmark is there's a very good economist at the University of Massachusetts Am Amherst, uh, Arin Dubé, who takes takes the takes the opposite approach that he, he he thinks that we should in fact raise the raise the minimum wage. I I, I don't want to put words in his mouth because so I don't I don't remember exactly what um, level level he thought. But it, it's really interesting that you have two, you know, incredibly talented economists at at either side of this issue. Uh, now, to give I, I, before we go further, I, I want to give a little uh, sort of international context to the fifteen dollar minimum wage. So, or, or the proposed fifteen proposed increase. So, right, you might ask, like, well, what's the highest minimum wage in the world? It turns out that's in Geneva, Switzerland, at twenty five dollars an hour. And if you've ever been to Geneva, it is like if you think New York is expensive, uh, it has nothing on Geneva. But that's uh, that's a, that's an extreme outlier in a place where a sandwich costs twenty five dollars. Uh, the highest minimum wages that we could find via the this data is from the OECD. It's across countries, so all the data is comparable. Is that Luxembourg and Australia have the highest minimum wages that are about thirteen dollars and forty cents an hour. It converted to U.S. dollars based on 2019 prices. So, a $15 minimum wage would be the highest in the developed world. Uh, countries with minimum wages close to the U.S. include Israel, they're about $8 an hour, and South Korea at $7.20 an hour. And it's worth noting in this debate. So, there's been a lot of talk about uh, Denmark. You know, Denmark is this great example. The, there is no minimum wage in Denmark, interestingly. What Denmark has is a system called flex security, and it's basically a combination of a right to work state with strong unions, general social insurance, and universal health care. 
And basically, unless uh, Bernie Sanders becomes the median voter in the US Senate, which I don't see happening uh, anytime soon, I don't think Denmark is a particularly uh, useful, uh, useful comparison. So you know, does, does the fact that a $15 minimum wage would be, you know, basically the high, among the highest in the developed world, does that, does that change your views in, 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 in any way? Well, I, I gave my answer. I want to yeah. see Scott's answer first, because yeah, I, well, I gave I, my answer. Where should it be? I think $15 an hour is a bad idea. And I think it's for two reasons. One, we don't know what the effect will be, because one thing that David pointed out was that all the elasticities that have been measured are measured on 50 cent, $1 increases. And this is a shock to the system. So any prediction that we have um, based on that data, I think would be very unreliable. I think it's a bad idea. And two, the, the other thing that I said was that I think there should be a floor because there are expropriation issues in the economy. But the floor needs to be pretty low so that you don't have distortionary effects because California is different than Mississippi. And so having a federal minimum doesn't make sense. It's not the, the biggest problem a government has. And I've seen this up close for 12 years and they come up with a one size fits all policy because we're not a one size country. And so I think $15 would be a tremendous risk. That doesn't mean you that $7 up, Scott, is the wrong answer. You bring up something really great here is that why is the feds getting involved with this at all? That's the other thing. Like we have a, you know, a social contract that basically says like, listen, this is something that the states should do. And you're absolutely right. The, the differentiation, the, the, the different economies that we have in different states and the different. So yeah, set the floor in different places also allows us to learn a little bit better. Right. And, and anyway, go ahead, Greg. We could also ask the same questions about the states. So I've already kind of given my answer as to where it should be. The current one is, what is it? Seven twelve, And that's $7.12 too high in my opinion. But uh, 7.25. 7.25, sorry. That's $7.25 too high in my opinion. But the, the real arguments for this that you hear for a minimum wage of whatever it should be are rarely actually economic arguments in terms of what the effects will be. They're moral arguments, and there, there are two. The main one that we get is that nobody should work full-time and not have a living wage, right? not have sufficient to live on. And that's the argument that you're getting from Democrats in the Senate. Now, that's what you'll hear um, AOC saying when she's talking about this and others. And so one thing we might think about if we're thinking about this is, is that right? Why should that be? Um, what, what are answers to that for those of us who don't agree with a much higher minimum wage than $15? Because $15 isn't high enough to satisfy that standard. Um, and then the other argument, which I think you hear less often, is the argument that Scott's making um, um, about expropriation. But there, it doesn't seem to me like really an argument for a minimum wage, because I think the kinds of expropriation that are likely happening at the bottom of the wage scale uh, are most likely happening with people who aren't working on the books anyway, where it's not happening legally, um, where people would be able to expropriate just the same, uh, whatever we set the, the wages on the books at. So I would think that there definitely needs to be enforcement mechanisms for people who are defrauding people, where there's some kind of coercion involved, uh, where there's uh, agreements that there isn't a real meeting of the minds in. But I, I, this seems to me the wrong legal instrument to deal with um, with those kinds of violations. And, and, and that's the typical, you know, disagreement between whether you legislate something or whether you adjudicate in the courts, right? I think people like Greg and I are way more happy to make sure that our courts are working right. And if people are being, you know, their rights being violated to some degree, you, you go and, 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 and challenge in the courts. Now, actually, it's a good question, Greg, about, about the people in the informal economy. I actually, I don't know that the, that's something to, to look into. Uh, but my impression, at least living in Texas, where we have a very large number of undocumented uh, uh, workers, right? Uh, probably, you know, we interact with them very frequently in restaurants and yard work and uh, Home Depot, whatever. There's lots of places that, you know, you see that. that, that and, and my understanding is that the going rate there for that very, very entry level job in our economy, it's not $7 an hour. Um, there was an article not long ago talking about how difficult it is to find people to clear brush in central Texas right now. And, you know, that is paying $12, $13 an hour. So that's like even in that. So the, the shortage of work here, of work, workers in Texas is so high that the market economy, that the, the market forces are at work and leading people to even people that don't have the legal protection of the system because they're outside of the system to actually benefit from, from the, the economic activity taking place. I mean, right now we are in a real labor shortage in Texas. It seems in a lot of industries, uh, I've noticed this just, you know, trying to get some work done around my house. Um, and 
uh, I, I have no idea whether the people ultimately doing the work employed by the companies, what their immigration status is, but whatever, you know, in many of these industries, um, it's just very hard to find workers of, uh, of any sort these days. And so the prices are being bid up as they should be. Yeah, I, just to follow on I, to something that Carlos said, or maybe somebody said, I think minimum wage is one tool, but not the tool. Like you can't solve these problems, particularly if you're talking about poverty. I think that's pretty clear. You can't solve it with a minimum wage. But I do think it's one tool. And one thing that I like about it, maybe this is you know my government hat coming back on again. I like standards. I like point of departures. In the same way in asset pricing and finance, I like there's a risk-free rate. We, we, we benchmark everything off of it. It's not the analog here, but having a point of departure for discussion on what a wage should be, I think it was important. I don't think it should be zero. And, you know, that's a perspective that I've held for a really long time because of like the behavioral views of like, where do we even start this discussion? Give me a point. I think it should be low, but I think it's also a point that's better than zero when talking with somebody about what should my wage be. Let me just uh, bring up one more point on the minimum wage, something that we had a discussion here in my house yesterday about it. We have a, a, a nanny that works with us that she's a UT student. And in her major AUT, she's required to do an internship to graduate. All right, so listen to this story. This is incredible. She's required to do the internship to graduate. Now, the internship has to be approved by UT. So UT has to approve that internship, okay? So the major has to say, okay, that's an internship that counts for your graduation requirements. The internships available for that, however, are internships that are getting people to work for about 15 uh, hours a week over an entire semester, and they give the student a thousand bucks. All right, so you calculate 15 times 15, you know, divide a thousand by, by 15 square, you're not gonna get a pretty high <laughs> dollar per hour uh, work here. And that's being forced by our university, right? So the reason I bring this up is because I'm from Brazil, where we also had the minimum wage being a binding law in, in the job market there. The minimum wage actually is too high in Brazil and actually creates a lot of disemployment effects, creates a lot of uh, underground economy as a result, so on and so forth. And one of the subterfuge that companies and the system does is this idea that, oh, jobs that are training jobs. You're not really working, you're learning. It's like, no, you are working. <laughs> and, but because you're deemed a apprentice or a intern, you know, the company's allowed to pay you less. So once again, there's unintended consequences of, of the sort of like trying to put a price, trying to put a floor or, or, or a, a constraint in the supply and demand at work here that in special interests and folks start working to try to get around that to whatever way they can, right? If that, if you're paying somebody over their marginal product of labor, you're just not going to do it as a company. And, you know, either you're going to find other ways to do it or you're going to find other, other, other sort of vehicles to get there, which is also pretty, pretty bad. So, you know, Carlos, something that came up in David talk, David's talk that I thought was super interesting that I didn't realize is that 40% of minimum wage earners are in households that have, are 3x above the minimum or the poverty mm -hmm. line. And, and the speculation was that that was, you know, a lot of high school workers. And I remember, like I came up in a middle income, maybe middle high income family. And I remember uh, my parents gave me a used car when I turned 16 that, you know, not people get that, but they said, if you want to drive it, you better earn your own gas money. So I worked at Kmart and I made $3 and 50 cents an hour, which is 15 cents above the minimum wage. And I got my gas money. And my parents did that to teach me the value of working and working at Kmart. And, you know, if the minimum wage were, you know, the equivalent of like $7 an hour back then, they probably wouldn't have hired me and I wouldn't have had that benefit or gas money uh, for my car. But this also speaks, you can extend this like au pairs that come over, you know, from Europe and we've had one and they work 40 hours a week. And if you look at their wages, it's like below, you know, the, the minimum wage or right at it, but they're coming over for experience, right? I mean, they come over to learn a language, be with their family. And so there's all sorts of ways you can look at this number that ends up with a lot of flaws and trying to set a number if you try to squeeze every situation into it. This right, right. speaks back to the AOC argument that nobody should be working 40 hours a week and earning less than you need to live on. And um, I don't think that's true in any case. I think what you earn is a fraction of what you create when you work. And um, But many people are working not to earn what they need to live on. They're working to get experience, they're working to learn certain skills, or they're working for some mixture of those things and the money, 
which is really what was going on with you, Scott, as a teenager having a job and me too. Um, it wasn't that you didn't want the money, but it wasn't that you were living on that money. Um, and uh, and for some people, it's, it's all sorts of combinations in between. And what having a minimum wage does is basically makes those jobs illegal. Or it makes those jobs illegal unless you find some other category to put them in where you call them training. Find a special interest. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Um, now, what you can do is have a carve out for training, but then you get this kind of weird switch. Like, is it training? Well, then these rules apply. Is it work? Well, then re these rules apply. Really, what it often is, is a combination of both for almost every job. And the flexibility to find the arrangements that are mutually beneficial to the employee and the employer are gone because we're given this rigid set of carve outs in the law of particular things that are okay. Uh, and people aren't able to pursue their own interests and their own happiness by their own judgment. This is why I think these kinds of laws are immoral. And by the way, for the listeners out there, uh, just we put this in the show notes here, Steve. If you don't know what Kmart is, that maybe tells you something about Scott's age. Uh, <laughs> are there no more Kmart's? Are they gone? <laughs> I don't think there are Kmart's for a long time. No blue light specials? <laughs> Attention Kmart shoppers Sorry, in the apparel department. For the next 15 minutes, <laughs> two for one. Uh, right. Anyway, so... Maybe it's a good time to move? to move on to it. Yeah. yeah. All right. So let, let's let's move on to talk about problem of, of homelessness. And so, uh, since we're working out ideas, I want, I want to state a couple of things before you know before we're talking about this. When we say you know the homeless, we, we do recognize that each homeless per person, first and foremost, is a person deserving of love and respect, and that the experience of the uh, the experiences of the unsheltered are heterogeneous. And so our intent is not to demonize or otherize or for that matter, to romanticize this vulnerable population. Um, so this, this issue is salient because in Austin, Proposition B is on the ballot. And Pro Proposition B would reinstate the camping ban in downtown Austin. And while penalties are In the, in aren't the whole set city, out, in the whole town, yeah, in the whole town. Yeah, sorry, in, in the whole town. And while penalties aren't set out in the language that's on the ballot, before 2019, the violations of the ban were considered a class C misdemeanor which is a crime punishable by a fine of up to $500. So that you don't have to fine. You could find say zero. Um, and there were 18,000 of these citations issued between 2014 and 2016, which is the last year for which I could find data. So I want, I want to structure this discussion with you know, discuss, discussing what are the benefits and trade-offs of adopting Proposition B and recriminalizing uh, camping and more generally, uh, are there any uh, policy approaches to you know, the problem of uh, the unhoused that you find particularly promising? So again, I think there was a, another time where, where we learned something from, from measurements that weren't necessarily uh, available to us before. Uh, so, so we had, and to, be, to disclose here, our guest, Judge Locke from the Sister Institute, uh, works for a think tank slash lobbying group, which means that they have a vested interest in this particular, you know, in this particular uh, uh, discussion here. So they, they are really, they're pro Proposition B, which by the way, we're recording this on a Friday, the election is tomorrow in, in Austin, Texas. Um, and and what a, w there's not a lot of data, there's not good really information about this, uh, uh, readily available for people to study and think about the trade-offs as easily as we would like to. But they did put some effort behind uh, this, and there were some data coming from Phoenix, some data coming from LA, some data coming from some San Francisco, if you look at their work, and also Austin. And the one thing that I learned that I, I, I thought was really interesting uh, was this notion that in places where camping bans got lifted, you saw a decrease in the number of sheltered homeless and an increase in unsheltered homeless, and camping in the street counts as unsheltered homeless. Okay, so what's going on here? What's going on here is that before camping bans were lifted in those places, you had basically the police or some sort of, you know, city service or whatever, making sure that people, hey, you're not supposed to be here, move along, move along, and sometimes finding them, so on and so forth, right? Um, but that led, them, that, that led homeless folks to pursue more actively social service that are available that will count as shelters. So, so shelters will be actually uh, uh, in higher demand as a result of that. Once you're given the option, it turns out there's a preference. There's a there's a there's a uh, um, a review preference here of camping seems to be a preferred choice than staying in 
in, or going to the shelters that are available. So why is that? Now, that's a tough question, right? Why are people preferring to be camping versus uh, uh, the shelters? And But I think the reality in terms of the consequences of being in the street is actually a deterioration of their condition. So being unsheltered for longer leads to, and there was some data in the, his talk, his discussion on higher drug overdose, higher crimin, petty criminal, crimin, uh, criminality across the, the, the group, people probably stealing their stuff or, you know, or more crimes being committed by them, uh, higher death rate, um, which that number was a little iffy, I think, in the presentation, but the, the, there's some indication of that. Um, and, and, and I think what we learned from that is that, well, once you look at the entire population of homeless uh, folks, you have this sort of two categories of people, three categories of people, I think that well, he, he mentioned in his talk, right? One, that's really people that are in need of economic need, help, that some shock for some reason are in the streets because, you know, they couldn't make the less rent and they couldn't, and if something happened in, a, in the sort of economic, the financial side of the scale here that led them to be in that situation. Versus uh, the other two groups, which is this, about 75% of, 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 of we understand at least is the, the, the count right now, which are folks in situations that are just not economic. It's either drug addiction problems or mental illness or both, right? So there's which something that requires a different type of solution. So the point in, 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 I think the most sort of compelling argument in my mind of lifting the ban, sorry, not lifting the ban, uh, reinstating the ban is, is that that's a, v, a tool, an enforcement tool that will make people connect people to services more readily, more, 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 more frequently, and, and therefore potentially put them in a path to, you know, resolve the situation. I want to hear Greg's view. Well, I don't know what would be best for the people who are under the overpasses now. Um, but I don't, I mean, at, at the, going back to the furthest level, I don't think there should be public property. There should be as little of it as possible. And when there is public property, not in the sense of things that are unowned, like some wilderness somewhere, but like, you know, this road, this courthouse, this police station, this university, these things that are, um, you know, parts of the city or state infrastructure. I think that that property is owned and maintained by the government, state, federal, or local for a certain purpose. And we have, uh, it's an infringement on the rights of everybody when it's used for things other than its purpose. And um, of course, we as a society could decide to expand that purpose, but I think it's a mistake to. And I think we know that the overpasses are there and are put there and are maintained there not to serve as a place for people to uh, live, um, but uh, to aid in transit right around the city. And so I think if we want to have public provision for uh, people who don't have homes, it's the wrong way to do it, to just turn over everything that's publicly owned in the city as places for them to gather. And you know this, uh, so I don't think this is, is a, a proper kind of policy. I think if we're going to have public streets, public parks, public whatever, the there ought to be defined purposes for these things and people should be uh, treated as trespassers if they're using them for purposes other than that. But then what ought we to do with people who, uh, through whatever range of circumstances, don't have a place to live, are suffering from mental illness, it might be through, you know, uh, whatever the case might be. I mean, that's a difficult question. I'd like to see it handled mostly through private charity, but whether it's handled through private charity, public charity, through mental health provisions by the, the local governments, um, it just seems like a, a distortion of the purpose for which we have this property for it to be used this way, and that there's a kind of pretense involved in it. Um, it's um, public property, like when I was a little kid, uh, and this was wrong, something wrong I did, I had the sense like, the park is mine because it's everyone's, and therefore I could do whatever I want in it. And I have the right to be there doing whatever I want, no matter who else is using it prior for what purpose. If it's a baseball field and I want to walk across it and sit in the middle of it and have a picnic while people are playing games, who's there to stop me? This is here for everyone. And that's ridiculous. It's not, it's it's there for a particular purpose. These people, there are rules for how it's used. It's for a baseball game. And if I want to have a picnic in center field while they're playing, I'm trespassing on their game. And I think likewise, 
if people are doing uh, what we're seeing under the overpasses, it's it's a trespass, and it ought to be treated as such in the law, whatever provisions there ought to be to uh, help people who need help. Then, so you know, how how do you how do you help people who 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 don't have enough money for a more permanent shelter? And there are two questions there, right? Which is, who should do the helping? Uh, whose responsibility is it? Who just wants to volunteer to do it? And two, whoever does the helping on whatever terms, what would work? What would help? And I think what the the talk that we had gave us some insight into is what kind of policies would, would be helpful. Uh, drug prevention policies, shelters, that which shelters include, um, uh, you know, access to drug treatment programs, access to mental health programs. I don't yeah, know if and, that's and I think answer, that, but it seems like a plausible. Right. And I think that the, the just to talk about who helps, right, I think that there is a, I mean, I think I would agree that I would prefer to live in a society. I think, again, Greg and I maybe prefer to live in a society where we, we, may, we keep government to a minimum and we let provisions of things like that to be done by, 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 by charitable organizations, by private actors deciding to help. Uh, but that's not the world that we live in. And we live in a world where governments are ubiquitous and uh, too powerful and almighty everywhere. And here they have a responsibility. Our people in Austin sort of decided that the government of the city of Austin has a responsibility to deal with this problem. What's interesting was something that we learned from that talk as well was that the government crowds out the ability of others to help privately. So he mentioned a group, a private group that wanted to help people by providing them with some incentives to achieve certain steps and then get a house and so on. Right. But that group was if the government was involved with them in any shape or form, that group could not do the way they were thinking about doing because the government said, no, it's housing first with no conditions. We can put no conditions on on, on, on people in any in any capacity. So governments stop the, basically the sort of like experimentation that might be needed for us to really learn what works, what doesn't work in a situation like that. Beyond that, to me, it's, 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 it, there's, a, there's a cynical view of, of what happens here, which is like, what were they trying to do when they lift the ban? What was the goal there? It's not like lack of money in the city. The city of Boston budget has been growing at an incredible clip because of the, 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 the sort of increasing property values here. So what's not lack of money is not lack of is lack of ideas. It's lack of ideas of what to do. So they sort of put their hands in the air two years ago and said, ah, you know, let's make this problem more visible or something. Let's uh, let's share the pain here. Let's take them out of the wilderness without realizing some basic laws of economics, which is like, you know, incentives matter. Incentives matter everywhere in every single interaction of human beings. And now you have a situation where if you are living homeless in San Antonio, Houston or Dallas, you're like, well, I don't can I cannot camp in the street here. And camping seems again by review preferences is something that the homeless like to do. Where do you go? So the fact that our population went up by two or more in in the span of those two years uh, is not surprising at all, right? We made the problem worse without having any plan to really actually deal with 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 with, with that population that's vulnerable. So we hurt them. We hurt them. And the final thing that I think is absolutely cynical here is the fact that, as Greg pointed out. We constrain what kind of public areas they can camp on and constrain in, in horrible ways. Like we say, yes, you can go camp on the Dover Pass, but not in the park. I mean, we all probably camp in our lives at a park at some point in life, right? And it's a much more pleasant thing than staying under the highway. It's probably like for the health of those people, significantly better if they were able to camp at Zucker Park or at the UT grounds for that matter. Why not? The university should you know, provide some public space there if that's what we want as a society, right? But no, we decided to put them in the worst parts of town, which is like, I think it very, I mean, it's inhumane in my, in, in my view. You're really, really creating a situation that really hurts everybody. So it, it's interesting looking at the extent, or not interesting, that's, that's the wrong word. Uh, I, I have statistics on the extent of the unsheltered population in Austin. So in 2020, there were 2,500 uh, unsheltered people, and that's up from about 2,100 in 2010. So th this surprised me. I, I would have thought that the numbers would have gone up um, much more. Now I don't I don't remember exactly when this at what point in 2020 this was measured because I would I would imagine you know measured in January 2020 you could have a very different um, result from say you know Dece December 2020 but 
uh, I, yeah, I, I was, I was, I was surprised that the, I wouldn't compare number... Steve. I, I, I just would point out that I wouldn't compare to 2010 as a benchmark because that's like right after the financial crisis, right? So you might have actually a time point in time where homelessness was probably worse around the country as a result of the, of the, 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 the big recession that we faced during that time. So I think the numbers that I see that's like 30 to 50% increase are from like 2017 to 2020. So I think there was like, a, but I don't know. Yeah, I'll, I'll 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 put I'll put the numbers in uh, in in the in the notes as well. Uh, what what what's interesting? So in, in when I'm talking about 2,500, these these are numbers from the federal government. There's an intergovernmental council on uh, homelessness, which takes I think it's 19 government agencies, and the, the 2,500 number is people who are you know completely unsheltered or in you know or in homeless shelters this doesn't it doesn't include anyone who's at risk and this is another population because I, I think when we're, when, we're, when we're talking about vulnerable populations we want to talk about you know the most vulnerable the people on the streets but also the people at risk because it, helping the people at risk is also really important because if you can make it so that they don't end up they they, they, they don't go on the streets that's better and this population um, ha it's hard to get a handle on it, but um, one way to do it is to look at uh, the number of homeless students because the Department of Education uh, calculates homelessness differently from the from housing and urban development. So to be homeless for the Department of Education, you can be essentially couch surfing. And so they don't have numbers directly for Austin and Travis County. But in Texas, in 2015, there were 113,000 homeless students. In 2019, the latest year I could get data for, there were 231,000 homeless students. And I'll note that the vast majority of these were are uh, people who are couch surfing. So these are not students. That's college, street. right? That's over 18 years old, right? Because before that, child services coming in, and and there's provisions of housing for kids. Uh, the, the, de the, the definition, is, it just says children and youths who are sharing housing of other persons due to loss of housing, economic hardship, or similar reason. Okay. It, this doesn't okay. give okay. an age. So th this, this does, I believe this does include uh, school age children. Now, okay. you're, you're right. They, 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 they're, there are programs like uh, WIC, WIC um, and I, I'm, I'm but going they're, to but they're not on shelter. The these are shelter, these are people that are couch surfing, you're living somewhere else. Okay. Yeah, so, some of these. So some, some uh, unfortunately are uh, on the streets, but the, the the vast majority, you know, there's a, there's a huge gap between the 2,500 on the streets and the 231,000, which includes some on the streets, but mostly it's people in you know in shelters and those who are, are couch surfing. So I, I I brought that up as a sort of a way of estimating that the vulnerable population is is quite large here. And that you know any sort of any any so I mean I was going to say solutions, but you know look at our our T-shirt suggests that solutions is the is the wrong uh, wrong language. But you know any policy should also can also needs to consider the, those that are those that are you know most most at risk. So one of the the you might think that. Um the public camping bans wouldn't have an effect one way or the other on people coming into or out of the at-risk populations because insofar as we would have an, an increase of homeless people in Austin due to the lifting of the ban, it would be uh, of people who are already homeless deciding to be homeless here rather than than elsewhere. That was the, the uh, how Carlos talked about it. Um, but we did have some discussion in the talk, right, about um, the dynamics of what happens when people are in this at-risk category. And uh, if the option is uh, when their housing situation is becoming precarious, if the option is to go into a shelter versus if the option is to camp for, um, for uh, a week or something, uh, what then happens the week after that to the people? And so... I wonder, I mean, there's some question as to the transition between people in Austin who are at risk for homelessness and then being homeless, but I, I don't know whether how we would expect this these policy changes to 
impact how many people get into that at-risk category in the first place. If it does, I, I would be interested to hear what the mechanisms of effect are there. And, and, and I also would say, oh, sorry. Uh, I would say that that uh, this vulnerable population Steve is referenced to, I think speaks to the folks that might end up homeless on from an economic point of view. Uh, for the most part, and and again, going back to our last discussion here, the the with with Bruce Meyer uh, uh, from Chicago, right? The way we measure the effectiveness of our anti-poverty programs actually might 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 lead to an underestimation of their effectiveness, and it seems that some of these programs are way more effective than we give them credit for. So yeah, I'm not suggesting that there's no hardship, but that's not. Uh, but but like the moving from the real bad situation to potentially going the street is something that our safety net actually does a pretty good job avoiding from the economic point of view. But 75% of those folks seem to be folks that are coming in the streets because of things that are not necessarily economic. It's drug addiction, it's completely disconnection from their families and 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 something to do with like mental health, right? And one number that the judge mentioned that to me is mind boggling is the fact that in 1950, there were 500,000 people in mental institutions in the US. And now there are 50,000. We didn't change the amount of people needing you know, extreme mental care. We decided to change how we treat them. And a lot of it for a lot of good reasons, I think. I think that there was like probably a lot of bad things being done in 1950s, right? But I think we didn't necessarily think that through very carefully. And there are a lot of people in need of help um, in that particular dimension that just doesn't that doesn't get her or the, the vehicles are not in place. And he mentions that the situation in Phoenix where once the ban was, in, uh, was lifted, the doctors start complaining that their patients disappear because there was no more vehicle for their patients to actually make it to the hospital, make it to the clinic, get the treatment that they're, they're trying to get. So it's a tenuous link anyway, uh, connection between somebody in that tough condition and a, and a psychiatrist, right? But, you know, giving up on it doesn't seem to be, doesn't seem to be the, 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 the right thing either. I like, I like the point you bring up, uh, Go ahead, Carlos, and that you're really separating different types of homelessness. Like there's some types of homelessness that I think are addressed one way, but the part that you're talking about, I think is almost intractable is how do you, how do you deal with those who have substance abuse um, uh, or uh, other issues that um, really require in some ways taking away choice if you want to fix that problem? Because if you let them choose, nothing will change. They would choose to live on the streets. They don't want to live anywhere else. It's not as if they don't have a better option in their minds we have a better option for them, which is treatment. But then what do you do in that situation when you're effectively taking away choice and making them do something they don't want to do? Yeah, I wonder about that, about the, the claim. And there's definitely something right about this distinction between people, someone who lost their job and they've wound up on the street and they can't pay the rent versus someone who the change in their lives that led them to be on the street had to do with um, a mental illness or a drug addiction. Um, and drug addiction is a type of mental illness, arguably. Um, but there are there are plenty of drug addicts um, who are wealthy uh, and don't end up on the streets for that reason. They're they're strung out in their living rooms, right? Um, and there are people with mental illness who are from uh, wealthier families or are people uh, you know and don't end up on the street. Some still do because they run away, but. Um, but so it's not like it's never wholly non-economic, right? It's um, people have it is the cause of this person being in such destitution that they can't afford or find or maintain a home. Um, to what extent is the cause of that poverty that they're in um, uh, a mental illness? And if we think about taking away their choices, I mean, part of what we're doing by um, allowing them to use a uh, property that's for another purpose um, as their home or as a substitute for a home is in effect subsidizing certain choices that they're making. So um, we can call, if you, you forcibly put someone in a treatment setting, that is taking away a choice, but I don't see it as taking away a choice to not provide a subsidy for the behavior, which I think um, and, and, and I go back and I go back to the point I made earlier. I don't understand if you want to let people camp. It seems to be that we have we live in a state where space is not a problem. There's infinite space available. 
right? We can go in and very quickly set a plot of land where, okay, this is going to be organized. You're going to have like a little space for you here. Here's picture tent, picture tent, right? Make rows, make little streets and have the public services come in and help them. Provide them, okay, what do you need? You need training for a job? Let's let's try to connect with the programs that exist. You need mental health? Okay, let's try to connect you with the things without forcing anybody to do anything. Just like, okay, if we want to, you know, if we want to allow people to use, create a space that's purposeful for that and not just have this willy-nilly complete chaos that we created uh, ourselves here. And that'll be like a lot better for everybody involved and a lot more efficient, the use of the money, right? If you think about people having to drive around finding homeless folks in town versus there's, there's a place you go. And by the way, this model exists. That's what San Antonio does successfully. It's like a huge area where people can go camp, they get the services and things, you know, move forward. Uh, it's just, again, uh, 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 the, the incompetence of our leaders in Austin is, is glaring here. It's just like, you know, it's copying something that has not worked in places like Seattle, San Francisco, and Los Angeles. Yeah. It's like, like, you know, uh, uh, um, I mean, it's hard to explain. It's hard to understand. In general, I think all this, much of the state-owned land should be thought of as unowned rather than, than state-owned. And if it was unowned, people would have every right to squat on it and develop their own, and, and they would acquire property in it by so doing over time. But insofar as we have this land and we're treating it as state-owned, and it's not being put to some other specific purpose, like a highway is or a courthouse or a, a public park. Um, in divorce, it's not being put to some specific other purpose. I think a, a great purpose to put it to would be to uh, allow people who don't have homes to set up, exactly. uh, set up on it and to allow people who want to facilitate uh, different kinds of intervention programs, uh, facilitation programs um, to do it. And so far as we're going to have public services for this this seems like the place to do them rather than under the overpasses which is dangerous i mean i don't know if there are cases of people having gotten run over uh but i mean you'd expect eventually there will be it can't be very healthy to be breathing in these fumes and um it seems like the there's a question as to why why people are coming here and what what the incentive is um i mean they must prefer it to other places they might be um, well, I think but, it's I think it's true that I lived in D.C. for 10 years, 12 years. And so I got to know a lot of homeless people, many of them for several years. Um, and one thing that is true is homeless people like to be downtown because that is their source of revenue. <laughs> right. People giving them money and panhandling and they don't want to live. You, you, you give them a nice place to live 10 miles from downtown. They're not going to want to be there because what are they going to do all day? And so get them a van, bring them in a van. I just, so you can, you can create I... <laughs> transportation mechanisms right. for them every day, but but they want to be right. downtown. That's why they're in the overpass and the underpasses because you know it's it's a half mile to a good place to go sit in a corner and and ask for money. No, that that's true. I mean that that's the the. Oh, so here's a, okay, now now let me put my my theoretical economist hat here mm -hmm. for a second. There's a finite amount of places where they can camp. Therefore, there's scarcity. Therefore, there's an allocation process here that takes place. So if you are in Austin, Steve, you're not in Austin, but there's definitely a very different uh, quality of places to do. There's like by the river, right downtown in front of City Hall, there's a place where a lot of camp, there's an encampment there, right? That is a much preferred place to be than, for example, by the HEB, not far from my house under the overpass. I wonder what is the mechanism that allocates those resources? It's not a price system. We know that. Are there people taking advantage of these folks and like enforcing some rules of like pseudo property? Is that just the strongest one wins? You know, it, it, those are the three options, right? Is that there's force that's making the, the, the arrangement is maybe there's an, a, an acceptance of first what first come first serve, which I doubted. I doubted that that's not true for anything, you know, scarce in human behavior. Uh, I, I really wonder what's the, the, the mechanism in which they, people choose to be and what they are or they, how they end up in the places they are. Also, I wonder, and this is, will perhaps reveal my and all of our ignorance of this, because we, you know, we haven't really looked into these populations much, and perhaps we should, but I wonder what is preventing someone who's, you know, relatively wealthy from getting a bunch of RVs or fancy luxury kind of camping equipment with locks on it, and um, setting it up in what's really nice real estate in a couple of these places. And then, um, you know, that's his, his villa or something. Um, something must be because that's not happening. 
um, and um, maybe it's just the kind of social opprobrium you'd face for taking advantage of a policy like this in this way would be high, but um, I want they don't to... allow it to camp with an RV. Okay, that that is part of the rule. You're not allowed to do it with the with the with an RV. And somebody um, who's wealthy also has something to lose. Yeah, and their mechanisms for penalizing them that you don't have with somebody who has nothing to lose. And I think that's a big but difference. Then it makes clear what this policy is. It's not like it's public land, so we can do what we want with it. It uh, so people can, are free to camp on it. Because if you're free to camp, you're free to right. camp with normal right. equipment of camping. It's that it's we're we've decided to use these corners, overpasses, etc., in the city as right. um, ad hoc shelters. shelters. And then the question, that's a question of like, it's, why are we sheltering homeless this way rather than any other way? It's not an issue of it's the public land, we can use it. It's an issue of we've elected to have these rag This is both your point. This is both your point and Carlos's point. Let's make an active decision on how to treat this problem. Let's not do it passively by just saying, okay, you can camp now and letting the homeless population decide how to do it. We should be more active participants and making sure it's safer. It's uh, their welfare is more accounted for, uh, and everybody's welfare for that matter. People who live downtown too, uh, not just the homeless people, the people that live there permanently in condos and high rises and hotels, as well as people that are living on the streets. But I don't think it's passive. I think it's evasive. I mean, that is, it's, we actively did something removing this law. The people who removed it knew what kind of thing would happen if it was removed. So it, we, there was an activity taken, and I think it was taken under a kind of pretense of it being a different kind of thing than it is. That's my guess. But this is what Carl, you were saying, was the cynical. Yeah, yeah. I mean, potentially. I was going to say we should we should move on to our uh, final topic about measurement. Uh, Carlos, you you want to talk a little bit about yeah, why? Yeah, yeah. I will. I will. Let me so just important. bring bring one more thing. Let me just bring yeah. one more thing up that that is one of the things that frustrates me the most about bad choice of policies is who pays for it, right? Um, we have a, you're not going to see me complaining about situations where we decide to tax and transfer. I might disagree. I might not think that's the right thing to do. I have a moral problem with taxation. Greg probably would agree with me. I think it's, it's you know, there's a too much is you start crossing into a line that is not acceptable. However, from an economic efficiency point of view, taxing and transfer is something that makes sense in a lot of different ways. What I don't understand, because taxing, you can then do it in a broad, so all of us are participating, all of us are putting the money in, and therefore the money is being transferred to whomever needed. What I have a huge problem with, and it connects to the things that we're talking about here, things like, for example, raising the minimum wage. You're trying to help someone by making a subset of people pay for it. The guy who owns a McDonald's, the guy who hires people in the in the in the in his landscaping business, so on and so forth. Or in the homeless situation here, you're forced, basically you're creating, you're making people pay through an externality. You're making people that have a store next to the highway pay and not the person that you know has a store next to the nice park where they're not allowed to do. And that's, that's, that's just incredibly unfair. It should be something that we as a city decide to pay for, raise our taxes and transfer, you know, give them a check if that's what you think is a way to, to deal with this problem or build them a house or whatever it is, right? But don't make this be an unfair imposition of a cost on, on people that have nothing to do with the problem, right? And that's true in a lot of idea, bad ideas that comes from both right and left is that you're trying to create some cross subsidies or, or, or basically making people that an uneven way to pay for certain political outcome or policy desire that you, that you have. But anyways, that's just a, a rant uh, that applies to lots of problems. <laughs> but how, um, how, how, do you, how do you measure those problems, Carlos? Exactly, exactly. Mm-hmm. So uh, uh, we had our last guest of our discussion here was somebody that I, that I meant to have visit us for a long time and somebody that I, I really am a fan of his work um, with Bruce Meyer. And, and it was very, uh, somebody that has been working his entire career in measuring poverty, measuring, essentially, how, how do we think about measurement of things like income and consumption, and which are important things to inform our decisions when it comes to, to, to the policy space, right? One of my favorite things that he wrote, and I, maybe I mentioned this in, in the conversation, I don't know, um, is, is how do we think about income over time? So, for example, there's a, a myth out there, and I call it a myth, that wages have stagnated for the last 40 years somehow the middle class didn't get a raise 
And if you look at the, the medium hourly wage in the country, 1970, and compare that to of 2020, okay? Well, there's a 483% increase in nominal terms, meaning that, you know, a dollar became one, whatever, five times that, right? So, 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 so that's what, 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 what it is, what it is uh, uh, in nominal terms. However, of course, the dollar in 1970 buys more than a dollar in 2020. Therefore, we need to deflate that, right? So how do you deflate? How do you change, you know, put things into apples to apples comparisons? And then there's like all this discussion. Oh, should we use a CPII, CPIW, CPI this, that? There's lots of different ways to do it. Uh, what Bruce has done is to try to really think about what is the optimal way to do it to compare really what people have access to as a result of their, of their, of their work, right? And when you do that, well, the middle class has had a 70% increase in wage over the same span of time. So maybe you can say that's not enough. That's a discussion we can have. However, just by looking at the wrong measurement, you can create rhetorics, you can create stories, you can create narratives that are just not right. They're just might imply the need for some policies or some decisions. They're just not there, right? So in his talk that he came over here to talk about, he was talking about how do we measure poverty? What's the, you know, there's this thing called the poverty line in the US. What does that determine? How do we measure that? That's something that started after uh, a Lyndon Johnson War of Poverty Declaration in the 60s, and something that we've been measuring this pretty much the same way since then. Um, I can't remember exactly the rules to define that, but that's something that has informed policy through the years because we care about the number of people that fall under the poverty line. The number that he quoted was that in 2020, right before the pandemic, we had the lowest level of people ever below the poverty line in our country, and that was something like 12% of people. Okay, um, but then if you look more carefully, what do you mean by poverty? What it is poverty? What it is? Are we adjusting for the in-kind transfers? Are we adjusting for all the government programs? Are we adjusting for the consumption level that people have? And the answer is no in those typical measures. And what Bruce shows is that a more effective measurement of policy or poverty, once you actually take into account the transfers people are getting, the in-kind uh, access and consumption measures, you end up looking at there's something like 5% of people, 6% of people, I think was the number, under the poverty line. So it's a gap of 20 million people here between you know what the effective number is. And even if you take out consumption, one of the things that he showed up is just not, you know just the merging of administrative data, data that tells us who we're sending checks to. The government knows who they're sending checks to, right? Versus surveys that, that calculate, oh, what do you get in terms of income, so on and so forth. So it is, you know, it matters, right? It matters because our choices, our focus, our decisions might be very different if we think that there is, you know, something like 12% of people we need in the country versus 6% of people we need. Uh, questioning the, you know, the validity or the effectiveness of, of our capitalist system because there's too many people in poverty. Like, well, maybe it's not, not so bad if there's only 5% people in poverty. So I think that that's, uh, uh, again, um, Telling stories without the right numbers is is very dangerous, and I think creates false narratives, creates false sense of problems in situations where you know your eyes don't lie to you. Look around, look outside. We're not living in a terrible time. We're living in a very prosperous time, and if you compare that from you know through the years, and again, careful calculated numbers show us that. I think I think that's a, a good I think that's a good place to 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 end. Uh, <laughs> I don't want to have the last it, word. <laughs> it's like, well, this is, you know, this is one of the purposes of, of, of the center, you know, good, good measurement is really important. And one of the things that these talks reveal and that a lot of the work that we're seeing uh, reveal, whether in the end you agree with the conclusions of the speakers or not, is, um, yeah, bad numbers or wrong numbers can lead to real confusions, really bad decisions. But bad numbers aren't ginned up or fake numbers all the time. It's hard to figure out what the right numbers are. These things are hard to measure. Right. And people of good faith with a lot of work and expertise spend a lot of time trying to figure out how to measure these phenomena, just like every other phenomena that we try to measure. It's not easy. Uh, and uh, it's a real skill set that needs to be developed. And there are disagreements among experts about how to do it well. And if we all approach it with honesty and integrity and, and recognize the kind of work involved, um, hopefully will as a society get better at this kind of measuring and these debates will become more informed rather than less over time. 
And, and I think at a time of polarization, it's important to emphasize the fact that I'm pretty sure that those four individuals that we mentioned that work here today, you know, these are not QAnon folks, right? <laughs> they are folks that are probably centrist, if not left-leaning uh, in their political preferences. And yet they're very careful, they're honest, they're trying to do things to the best of their ability, given their disciplines and, you know, get to conclusions that are, 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 are well, not get to conclusions, provide us with information that helps us uh, uh, address and answer questions in a much more effective way. Yeah, I agree. Getting to a, a set of facts that we can all agree to and then argue about what to do is right. needs to be where we should should be starting from. And I think to your point, Carlos, it's great uh, that we have people that have dedicated their careers and lives to trying to answer these sorts of questions, and they're not easy. And I'll just add my end of talk disclaimer that I have not studied any of these issues and only listened to these talks and became informed by them. And so I would suggest go listen to the actual talks themselves instead of my views in particular. But I thought it was really excellent, the series of speakers that came in to talk about these very related issues. And listen to them with, with an eye to, are these people, in effect, hacks just arguing for whatever policy they're in favor of? Or are they people who are trying to find the truth here? And whichever you think, you be someone, and we should all be, people who are trying to find the truth here. And if you have reasons to think any of the panelists or any of the talks are wrong, right, or they get the facts wrong, uh, or there's more information they're not considering, or have they thought about this, or what about this method, or you have links to other materials that uh, you think are better on this, or, or add context to the picture, please, we've got these things up on YouTube. You can link, send comments, send them to us. Um, because, you know, we want to know what's true and we hope you guys do too. And, and, and come to our talks and we always get people to ask live questions and that's always a, a, a wonderful part of our experience. So thank, thank you very much, everyone. And we will, we'll, we'll, we'll see you soon. All right. Thanks all.